This is a civil action. Brian Kabatek here along with Shant Karnikian. We're coming to you today to educate you about some recent cases that have come down in the California courts, the Ninth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court, trying to keep you interested and, and apprised of what's going on in recent cases and how it may affect your practice, particularly if you're a plaintiff's lawyer. And if you want to know more about us, you go visit us online at kbklawyers.com. You can follow us on social media at Cabotech LLP. You can subscribe to the podcast so you'll know when the next episode is coming out. And if you can leave some feedback, that'll be very much appreciated. So we're going to talk about six cases today. The first involves serving a foreign government. The second is the Prevet Doctrine and an injured while working for a subcontractor. The third involves immunities of school district. Then we talk a little bit about late claims and late notice uh, involving medical malpractice cases, and then some arbitration as usual, and when you can and when you can't arbitrate, and we'll finish today with a case involving the Telephone Consumer Protection Act uh, from the Ninth Circuit. So let's go to the first case, the Republic of Sudan versus Harris. This is a United States Supreme Court case which goes all the way back to the year 2000 involving the bombing of the USS Cole while it was docked, I believe, in Yemen. Is that right, Sean? That's right. Um, and this case was argued in November of last year, and the decision came down in March of 2019. With the, um, it, it was authored, I believe, by Alito in a dissent by Judge Justice Thomas. Um, So some context as to what the claims were here, or the claims were brought under what's called the um, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which generally immunizes a foreign sovereign from lawsuits um, by U.S., uh, by people in the United States, unless there's some exceptions that it falls into. Um, We've actually litigated some cases that involve exceptions to the FSIA, but we won't get into those. Um, However, when the exception applies, in order for the uh, federal district court to have jurisdiction over this foreign entity, they need to be properly served. And this case involves the issue of service, which is defined in, I believe, Section 1608 of the code. So this is probably something that's not going to come up in most people's practice because more often than not, you're you're not suing a foreign government. But if you do sue a foreign government, you need to actually serve the foreign minister. Now, you don't have to find the foreign minister and serve him or her in person. You can do it by mail. But if you don't serve the foreign minister and you try to do something like serve the embassy, your case is going to get kicked. And unfortunately, what happened here is that the case was vacated or the judgment in this case. It was a large judgment, wasn't it, Sean? It was a very large judgment uh, by the victims of the uh, USS Cole bombing, and it was against uh, the Republic of Sudan. Because, and the argument was that the Republic of Sudan had had held and uh, allowed to flourish the al-Qaeda bombers, yeah, I think, were that were involved, Effectively right? harboring terrorists or fostering terrorism. But I think the reason this is important is when you are involved in any kind of litigation and you have a foreign entity, whether it's a government or whether it's just a business or foreign national, the rules about serving are very, very specific and very difficult to follow. And you better be careful about it because even just serving a foreign national, you usually have to go through the Hague Convention, translate it into the language that's generally understood in their country, and serve it through the Hague Convention. And while most of us aren't going to encounter this in our everyday practice, it's going to come up eventually if you practice in California long enough. Above anything, I think, even if people don't encounter it, I think it's a good lesson to 
um, really see how strict jurisdictional rules like this are when it comes to, or sorry, procedural rules like this are. So you need to adhere to those rules very closely. So let's go to our next case. That's Johnson versus Raytheon. It's a case out of the Second District Court of Appeal in California and involves the Prevet Doctrine. What are the facts of the case? So uh, the plaintiff in this case, Johnson, had been hired by an independent contractor that was working for Raytheon. So Raytheon is the big company that hired independent contractor. Independent contractor hired Mr. Johnson, the plaintiff, to come in and do some work. He was working at a facility where he's monitoring, I believe, water cooling tanks or water cooling towers. And at some point, there's an alert that goes off that lets him know that he needs to check on something inside a tank Uh, physically and not just through the monitors. So he goes up to the tank and he sees that he needs to climb above the level where the water is in order to see inside. So he climbs on top of um, an extension ladder, which is not to be used separately by itself. It's supposed to be used with another type of, um, I believe, a platform ladder. It's meant to connect to it. So he places this on, on the side of the tank. He climbs up, doesn't realize that it's wet um, at the base of this ladder, which is not, which doesn't have proper footing, and because it's wet and he couldn't see the water initially, uh, he slips, he falls down, and uh, he gets, I'm assuming, severely injured. Well, I think that the issue isn't whether it was uh, the right ladder; it was the right ladder, but not for this particular type of task. And the argument was that they should have made available, the general should have made available. A, uh, a platform type ladder and they didn't make it available. So um, the injured party, of course, can't sue his own employer. He was a subcontractor. He, he had a workers' comp claim against his employer, presumably, but he can't sue his own employer. Instead, the only choice he has is to go ahead and try to sue others who were involved in this, including Raytheon, who, who own the property. And uh, the Prevet Doctrine usually prevents people from suing the uh, hire of an independent contractor, but there are two exceptions, so we're going to talk about both of those now. First, there's the hooker exception, which allows for a plaintiff to sue the hire of an independent contractor when that hire retained control over the safety conditions at the work site and negligently exercised that uh, control that they were retaining. So you need to show that the hire, in this case Raytheon, affirmatively contributed to the injuries because they were in charge of controlling the site and the safety, and they didn't do that. And then there's a uh, Well, let's let's stop there and just say that the the court specifically found in this case that failing to have a ladder available or failing to have a ladder readily available didn't rise to the level of negligence, um, at least to, to meet the standard under the hooker exception. That's right, Uh, because uh, one of the facts that they considered was because Raytheon didn't represent that the partial ladder should have been used and wasn't controlling that aspect of it. So, Right. uh, According to the facts, Raytheon didn't have any control at all. He was just going about trying to do his work. He wasn't told, go use this ladder, which I think would have been a very different fact pattern. Understanding Prevet is is difficult because um, there are exceptions, and you have to be able to completely comprehend the exceptions to be able to apply them. But what's the second exception to Prevet? So the uh, second exception to Prevet comes from a case called uh, Kinsman, which has held that there's there's three elements that can be met that would ultimately um, impose liability against the hire of the independent contractor. And those would be that the landowner knew, or, or the hire, or, and, and sometimes is referred to the landowner, 
knew of a dangerous condition, that the contractor could not have known uh, of that dangerous condition or discovered it, and that the landowner or hire failed to warn about that condition. Here, the court found that the second element isn't met because the contractor uh, could have known about the dangerous condition. Um, the The facts in in this case were that the uh, Mr. Johnson, who got injured, had a flashlight with him. He chose not to use it, and if he had used it, he may have been able to see the water because one of the arguments plaintiffs were making here is that there was no way for him to have known well, that the water made the, using the ladder unsafe. Well, actually, I think it goes further than that. I think what they also said is that this whole argument about there not being a ladder or not ladder being available for him to use at the time – they found that not to be particularly credible because they said that the manager of the plant uh, knew that there was another ladder available. He may have known there was another ladder available. Uh, so they just simply couldn't find Prevet. I think the only silver lining here in this case, as you read it, is that there were other possible defendants that could have been brought into this case or that were in this case. So hopefully the person's able to recover. But the Prevet Doctrine, I think, is just a, a, a trap, and people have to be very careful about and, it. And this is something important for uh, attorneys out there that do some workers' comp to keep in mind, because when you have situations like this, you might want to look around and see if there's some other hirer of the independent contractor or your client's direct employer that may be held liable, and this is something we've litigated. So if you have questions about this, we'd love to talk to you about it or hear from you or hear your, your thoughts on this. Hey, the next case is Grossman versus Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District. So first, let's just take a thought what it must be like to attend the Malibu Unified School District. That must be that must be pretty good. But for the rest of us that went to um, potentially less interesting schools uh, and those of us that are just interested in the law, I think this was an interesting case because when you do do this um, review of cases on a regular basis, you inevitably find something, some little tidbit of law that um, really has uh, an interesting edge to it. And this one I thought was interesting because— And something that people might not know. It might not be common knowledge about these immunities. Right. And and there exists an immunity. So we'll sort of start first with what the rule is here. There, there exists an immunity in the law that a school district, which is required by law to make its um, property available for booster organizations, organizations which support the school and support the students— have generally an immunity from any kind of liability for something that happens on the school district. And it's interesting because, first of all, state law mandates that schools must make their property available for these kind of booster organizations. And the second thing is that they used to require um, kind of onerous hold harmless agreements to be executed by, by these groups. And as a result of this statutory exemption from, from liability, really an immunity under the education code, schools are not obligated to get a hold harmless agreement because by law they're generally hold So, so that hold harmless provision or doctrine was kind of codified into the education code, it sounds like. Right. And what happened here is that the PTA was having a carnival and somebody got hurt because uh, it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt. Right, Sean? Very funny. Very appropriate. And under the education code, the only exceptions that existed are um, specific type of, of exceptions to this immunity doctrine. And, and the, the, I think the two exceptions here are um, when the injury was caused by someone working for the school acting negligently. Or if there was a dangerous condition that the school district or school was uh, 
on uh, notice of, constructive notice even. And if there's no specific negligence and there isn't a dangerous condition that they're aware of, then they absolutely have immunity. So uh, that's the rule, and important to keep in mind if you get one of these cases coming across you, whether or not um, there's some kind of government immunity that exists. So that's Grossman. We'll move on to our next case, which is called Last Frontier Healthcare District versus Superior Court. It's a case out of the Third District Court of Appeal in California. And uh, this is a this started out as a medical malpractice claim. Um, the plaintiff here filed a or served her notice of intent to file a medical malpractice action, which is something that's required as a prerequisite. And Brian, what's required if you're going to go after a government entity? Well, if you're going to go after government entity, you have to file a claim, and the claim generally has to be filed within six months of the event. In this case. Uh, the medical malpractice allegedly occurred on February 17, 2017, and a little less than a year later, they served their notice of intent under the medical malpractice laws in California. So that was effectively timely, and if it wasn't a governmental entity that was at stake here, it was just a private hospital, what would have happened next? Um, it, you, would, you could just pursue your claim if it wasn't a governmental entity. Yes, but it also told the statute of limitations. Right. So sending of the uh, notice of intent would toll the statute of limitations for, I believe, 90 days. Is that right? Right. And in this case, the plaintiff actually filed their action for medical malpractice during that 90-day period. So if it wasn't a governmental entity, their action that was filed in April of 2018 would have been timely. However, it is a governmental entity, and they had not filed a claim within six months. So if you don't file your claim within six months, you can file an application for a late claim, correct? And that has to be done in six months. So you effectively really have a year. You have the initial six-month period, and then you have another six-month period to kind of cure that delayed file. Well, it's, it's not necessarily a cure. You can always ask the government to accept your late claim, but you must file a petition in court to have a late claim accepted no later than one year after the date of the event. So if you file it, then the court can at least consider it. Sometimes they'll grant it. Sometimes they'll deny it. They'll look at certain factors. However, what happens if you file it 366 days after the event? Too bad, so sad. Court loses jurisdiction. Yep. And that's what this court held, is that they lose jurisdiction. Because it's jurisdictional, it doesn't matter that they filed this notice of intent before the one year expired. It doesn't toll the time period to file a petition for a late claim. So these time, these time traps, and that's what they really are, they're traps. If you don't file them, then you are literally going to be out of luck. So the filing of the notice of intent to sue or serving of the notice of intent to sue does nothing to extend the government claim. They're, think of them as two separate tracks. Think of them as not having any effect on the other in terms of tolling. So always are on the side of caution. I know we're always having these cautionary tales about uh, time limits, but this is another one of those. Well, and you can't say it often enough because um, the next thing that happens in a situation like this is you calling your medical your legal malpractice because it goes from being a medical malpractice case to a legal malpractice case yeah right? and, and that might be an issue actually with this with that last case we talked about uh, so next we're going to talk about nieto 
versus Fresno Beverage. This is a case out of the 5th District Court of Appeal, and it involves our least favorite topic in the whole world. That's forced arbitration. But this one ends up with a uh, happy ending. It sure does, because the Federal Arbitration Act goes into effect in 1925, amazingly almost 100 years ago. And if anybody's listened to some prior editions of this, I've always made fun of the fact that the um, United States Supreme Court has put so much reliance on an act that went into effect uh, in 1925, the Federal Arbitration Act, holding that arbitrations are mandatory. It doesn't matter what state law says. It doesn't matter construction. Arbitrations are mandatory. However, there are exceptions to the Federal Arbitration Act. Yep. Section 1 of the Federal Arbitration Act specifically creates a statutory exemption for, quote, contracts of employment of seamen, railroad employees, or any any other class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. So let's get to the facts specifically about Nieto. Mr. Nieto is a driver. He's a driver for the Fresno Beverage Company. And the Fresno Beverage Company has a forced arbitration, mandatory arbitration agreement. He signed the mandatory arbitration agreement when he was hired. It's been in effect. And he then files a class action for wage and hour violations under California law. And he, um, obviously, defendant then tries to compel arbitration based on the agreement that he signed. And plaintiff here argues, among other arguments, that the FAA Section 1 exemption applies because um, the class representative here, Mr. Nieto, is engaging in interstate commerce. And, and the, he what falls did, within that exemption. Right. But what did the defendant come back and say? They came back and said, no, he only drives in California. A hundred percent of his driving is inside California. California. Yep. So facially, that looks like a problem. However, what the court held here is that, well, that really doesn't matter because the beverages, many of the beverages and the products he that he uh, that he delivers comes to his employer from out of state through interstate commerce. It's part of interstate commerce. It comes into warehouses from outside of California for a very short period of time, then get loaded up on trucks and delivered. So they hold that the Federal Arbitration Act doesn't apply, the exception applies, and no forced arbitration. So like Sean said, happy ending. The best part of this is the the place that the court got that fact from is the defendant's own arbitration petition, which said that the products delivered by defendant's drivers are part of a continuous stream of interstate travel. And then the court looked at that and said, well, you've admitted this, and therefore it falls within that exemption of Section 1 of the uh, Federal Arbitration Act. Hey, hey, I think this is a significant decision here because this means that basically anybody engaged in trucking or in the delivery of goods uh, is going to is going to not be bound by by a mandatory arbitration agreement. Maybe it's a little teeny tiny nose under the tent. Um, but also important to note that this case um, may have been the first one, but recently decided was Mueller versus Roy Miller Freightline. That's a case out of the Fourth DCA with the exact same holding. Yeah, quite literally, it's the exact same holding over there. Um, I think the argument was, again, he, he, he did not physically cross state lines, but the employer, this is a quote from that case, his employer is in the transportation industry and the vast majority of goods 
uh, heat transported originated outside of California. So what really matters, it looks like, is the type of business that the employer is engaged in. So it doesn't matter if that one driver is not going out of state or even if the stuff he's driving in California isn't going out of state. If the employer is in the business of working in interstate commerce, then you fall within this exemption. So there's a very important case to keep in mind. All right, our last case today is Henderson versus United States Aid Funds, United States AIDS Funds, or USA Funds. And um, this company is, in described in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal opinion, is one of the largest lenders or student lenders in, in the world. They have billions of dollars in loans. I'm sure, Shant, you would be aware of that. Uh, it also involves a loan servicing company called what? Navient. And how do you know that? Uh, because they're evil, and um, I pay student loans to them, and uh, I'm sure a, a large population of lawyers, young lawyers especially, probably are very familiar with the name Navient. Yeah, and, and, and in all seriousness, student loan is a student lending in this country is a major problem. It involves trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars in loans that are made for young people to be able to go to school, many of whom get good jobs and are able to move forward because of those loans. Others, like Shant, um, sort of flounder. That's right. So for me, it's an uphill battle, but you know that was, that was bound to happen. But for anybody that has a student loan, this case has to um, at least a little bit warm um, the cockles of their heart because in this case, we deal with the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Um, here, the plaintiff took out a, uh, a loan, a federal student loan, with this US, uh, United States uh, aid funds, and it was being serviced by a company called Navient. Don't you see how it's just completely coincidental, I'm sure, that their, their company is United States Aid Fund, which also is USA Funds. And they were um, they used Navient to service their loans. They didn't actually have any contact directly, but they get ser- sued for a violation of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which is basically robocalling, right? Yeah, and they were. I think Navient hired some debt collectors. They started doing robocalls. Um, in fact, I think the calls were on a number that wasn't provided, which is which is important. It was just really important because it isn't a number that the borrower had given permission for them to call. So it literally is a robocall, just like every single person listening to this, like me, gets four or five times a day. It was literally a robocall that was uninvited, that was unexpected, and that violates the law. However, in this case, USA Funds tries to get out of liability because they say it wasn't us and it wasn't our agent Navian, it was some third party that Navian hired. Yeah, they're they're arguing that the TCPA doesn't apply to us. We didn't engage in any of these acts. We're not a debt collector. We didn't do any of this. Um, And the issue really comes down to not whether or not the actions engaged in are a violation of the uh, TCPA, but whether or not there's some sort of relationship here between the debt collector that's violating the act and this company that owns the loans. And ultimately, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal held that there is a common law principal agency relationship here um, between the debt collector and the company that owns the loan. So they can establish agency, but then USA Funds has a number of different um, defenses, which were all shot down. They said that there was no ratification because they knew nothing about it. They didn't have anything to do with it. Um, However, there was at least some evidence that USA Funds communicated consent um, because they had done audits 
they, they were aware that this was going on, so through acquiescence they had consented. Um, they then said there was some evidence that there was actual knowledge, and my favorite, willful ignorance. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't, we didn't know. know what was happening. We didn't know. However, there the court found that there, there was at least some evidence in the record that USA funds set the collection structure in motion, that they, that they did it, and they did it intentionally so that they could feign ignorance and that that wasn't going to be a good defense. So the defense of willful ignorance just doesn't work. My, my favorite willful ignorance fact that the court points out right, right before the conclusion is that USA Funds forwarded all consumer complaints about the debt collectors to Navient. So they were even receiving the complaints and presumably not looking at them, just sending it down to their uh, loan servicer and saying, here, you deal with this. And the court said, that's willful ignorance. There is enough um, evidence here for there to be a triable question of fact as to whether or not they were they, there was a relationship between the two, a principal agent relationship. You know, the TCPA or the Telephone Consumer Protection Act is such a good act because it's one of those things that is plaintiff lawyers when we go to a cocktail party and we're talking to non-lawyers and people that would maybe be considered as super conservative or anti-litigation, tort reformers, they get stuff like this and it makes them angry. And yeah, I think there's a general consensus that stuff like this is terrible. Typically, we stay away from gotcha type of litigation where, you know, the packaging on a product lists the, incre- uh, the in- ingredient improperly or there's a comma missing or something like that. We typically stay away from that. But this is one of those bright line type of rules, the TCPA, where we think there's merit to it and, and people across the aisle, different ends of the spectrum, they all agree on So that's all we got for you today. Those are the six cases we want to cover. We hope, as we do every week, that you get something out of this, that it enhances your practice and your general understanding of the law, and that uh, we brought a a little bit of information to you that you didn't otherwise have. We enjoy doing these. We'll be back with another episode soon. We'd like to get some feedback from you. So if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I think you can write a review. If you want to respond directly to us, you can reach reach us on the internet at kbklawyers.com. uh, you can email us directly from there. You can find us on social media at Cabotech LLP. Um, we should be having more information out there about the podcast. And uh, you can subscribe to us so you can automatically get the next episode. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any feedback, please contact us.